Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. We welcome all who are here with us in the study of God's Word this day, those here in the gymnasium. And for those here in the gymnasium, there are Bibles in the back uh, on, the, on the rack over there. We also uh, welcome those who are joining us in the greater St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM and those joining us worldwide on KFUO.org. We're going to continue where we left off last Sunday in Luke chapter 11. But prior to that, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we continue to thank you for the blessings that you shower down upon us each and every day, both as individuals and as a congregation here at St. Paul's. We pray especially thanking you for the gift of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and for his life and death and resurrection, through which we have been gifted with the forgiveness of all of our sin and everlasting life. As we heard proclaimed in your word today, we pray that you would help us to set our mind on things above and not on things on this earth, that we might be your servants as we reach out with the ministry and mission that you have given to us. Send your Holy Spirit to be with us as we continue to study your word. May we continue to grow in our knowledge of that word and especially of your will for us as your children. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to continue uh, in Luke chapter 11. Remember, the first 13 verses in Luke 11 are dealing with prayer. Uh, remember, the beginning was uh, the disciples of Jesus come up and ask him uh, to teach them to pray, as rabbis did at that time. And then we got what we might call Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, the version that is in Luke. I shouldn't say it's Luke's version. It's in Luke. And we noted some of the differences between that. Um, I wanted to go back and just pick up one item that um, our, our class actually pointed out to me last week. And that is uh, Pope Francis, who is, of course, the current Pope. And as a matter of fact, was just in uh, Canada this last week and even hinted at uh, retiring or stepping aside. But it's the same Pope, Pope Francis, who actually uh, made a... More than a suggestion uh, that the words in the petition, lead us not into temptation, actually be changed. And we talked last week about God not, of course, wanting to lead us into temptation. He doesn't do that. Rather, it's not succumbing to that temptation. So I did a little bit. I was unaware of this and did a little uh, digging here this last week. It's not hard to find on the Internet. And sure enough, um, he actually said he would like it changed to, and, and changed it, <laughs> do not let us fall into temptation. Okay? So he's saying instead of lead us not into temptation, do not let us fall into temptation. And his reasoning, and, and as a matter of fact, this was back in 2016 that he started this conversation about this, and in 2017 actually proposed it then. Uh, here's his reasoning. A father does not lead into temptation. A father helps you to get up immediately, the Pope said at the time. It is not a good translation because it speaks of God, of a God who induces temptation. The one who leads you into temptation is Satan, he added. That's Satan's role. Well, we looked at Luther's explanation last week uh, in the small catechism, his explanation to the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. 
And remember the what does this mean part, God tempts no one. So Luther's right up front with that. And we know that from the book of James, when anyone is tempted, let him not say, it is God who is tempting me. Uh, God does not want us to sin, obviously, right? And he says, though Luther goes on to say, we pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. So Luther names that, that we might call that unholy triumvirate, the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, sinful flesh, and says we're praying in this petition that we might not succumb to the temptation that is present for us from those three sources. And so in a sense, Luther and the Pope are on the same page here. Uh, and uh, Luther then goes on to say, that, just to finish it off, although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. Of course, looking to the, the final result, when both soul and body, we are taken to heaven. So, um, you know, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. I was thinking a little bit about this this week. In a sense, there's nothing wrong with praying the words that the Pope uh, has said. I mean, there's nothing wrong with those words. Uh, do not let us fall into temptation. So on the one hand, we're not praying anything that's wrong doctrinally or is not correct. Uh, and then on the other hand, if we're understanding that that is the prayer that's in the scriptures, Matthew 6 is the one we actually pray, Matthew 6, 9 and following, uh, changing those words. I think we have to be very careful if we're, you know, if we're, if we're praying those words as they appear in the scriptures, we have, to, we have to be a little careful just to make an arbitrary change like that. Uh, we obviously as a church body have chosen just to keep the words as they are. And in our explanation of those words, just like the, the, expre the uh, petition, hallowed be thy name. We said, we don't, we don't make God any more holy by praying that. We pray, however, that he might be holy in our lives, right? As Luther explains it. So again, we have taken the route not to arbitrarily change the wording, but rather to keep the wording and explain the wording. Randy, I think you were first. Yes. Yes, he does. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The great, great comment for those of you on radio uh, or online, uh, the idea that these petitions, God is already doing these things, right? He is already not continue. In fact, you can't translate it. Continue not to lead us into temptation. Continue doing that. Uh, it's sort of an imperfect uh type of thing. It's, it's, it's an ongoing thing that you're already doing. And so we're praying in these petitions that recognizing what God does and does not do in our lives. Like, yes, Keith? Yes. Right. Yeah. Luke 22, the Mount of Olives on just before he is arrested, praise to the disciple or praise, uh, says, Pray to the disciples, pray that you may not be led into temptation. Right, exactly. And so it's the whole idea, again, of God not leading us into temptation, God not wanting us to sin. He obviously allows us to be tempted, does he not? 
He allowed his own son to be tempted. In fact, the Holy Spirit led his own son out into the wilderness to be tempted immediately after Jesus was baptized. So he does not put a, a, you might say, a, a wall around us to keep us from being tempted, but we are praying here that we would be sustained, that we would be supported, that we would not give into or fall into that temptation. Again, as we are tempted by uh, Satan, the world, and our sinful human nature. Okay? Well, just what, yeah, yeah, but... Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the comment again was the connection with our faith not being put to the test and tried as in as in a fire. The word has a little bit of that effect to it as well. The idea of being like you refine a metal and burn off the impurities in the metal. Uh, the, the word in the New Testament carries along that idea when it's used, especially elsewhere. Uh, there's a connotation of that as well. Absolutely. All right. Anything else? Any other comments? Very good comments. All right. So I got, I got, got the research done on that. I, again, I did not know about this when the question was asked last week, and I thought I'd look it up. All right. So let's get back into Luke 11. And remember the first 13 verses now are dealing with prayer, and bigger picture, remember that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the final time. Uh, Luke 9.51 is sort of the hinge verse in the Gospel of Luke where it says he set his face toward Jerusalem. And so he is on the way to Jerusalem where he knows, he tells his disciples uh, three times, uh, that he is going to be handed over to the chief priests, scribes, and elders, be put to death, and rise again on the third day. So he knows what awaits him. He's on the way to Jerusalem, and we've got this sort of travel uh, narrative on the way to Jerusalem. After the Lord's Prayer, we looked last week at verses 5 through 8 of uh, Luke 11, talking about the idea of persistence in prayer. Remember the, the person who gets house guests at night? and goes to his neighbor and pounds on the door. And even though the neighbor, and this would be unheard of back at that time, neighbor won't get up. Finally, because of the persistence of the person knocking on the door, he finally gets up. And we said in Mideastern culture back at that time, uh, uh, hospitality was number one expected of the community, not just of you at your house, but of your entire neighbor. So that story would be unheard of. And Jesus' point is, if God is like the person who is in bed, if even that person gets up, how much more will your heavenly Father answer your request for help and need? So it's kind of an argument from the lesser to the greater. <laughs> if even this guy uh, who's uh, you know doing what nobody would do finally gets up, how much more will your gracious God answer your repair uh, prayers when you are knocking at the door, so to speak. Okay. All right. Now let's go on from there and look at, uh, starting at verse nine, and I want to read nine through, well, we'll probably go nine through 13 and just finish it off and go back and talk about it. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. 
and it will be open to you. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? All right, so going back, um, let's just take nine here to start with. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Well, the knocking kind of goes back to what he just talked about, right? And, and the idea of the guy knocking at the door. This could be misinterpreted, could it not? To be understood that, well, you know, if I want a new Mercedes, all I have to do is go to God and ask. And why stop at a Mercedes? Maybe, maybe I want a new Rolls Royce, right? And I ask and it will be given to you. Is that what Jesus is intending to get across here, do you think? <laughs> yeah, not a big stretch. Say no. Uh, first of all, we think about how does God answer our prayers? We, we are uh, confident from the scriptures that he hears and answers each of our prayers, right? That are put before him in faith and trust, as we said last week, as a child would go to their loving father, so also we go to our gracious heavenly father, and Jesus invites us to call him father, but he answers our prayers only by giving us what? What is best for us, right? Now, do we always know what is best for us? Unfortunately, not, right? Uh, I think I mentioned last week, how many times, as you get a little bit older, you think back, and maybe something you were really praying about 15, 20 years ago, and you think to yourself, boy, am I glad God did not give me what I was praying for at that point, right? Um, I use the... Uh, when I teach confirmation uh, class, I've used the example of, you know, a high school senior who is praying and praying and praying that they get accepted at this college, and then comes the letter of rejection, right? And they end up going to a different college, and they end up going to that different college and meeting their future spouse there. And after about 10 years of marriage, you might look back on that and say, you know, I'm glad that God did not answer the prayer the way I was praying it, right? God knew better. Or, you know, I've used the example of a, a small little child who's too young to know yet and sees a candle there, a lighted candle on a table. What do they want to do? Reach out and touch that thing. And of course, parents hold back, right? And the child can't understand why mom or dad won't let me touch that. What, what, what's wrong with you, mom or dad, right? Same thing with our limited knowledge of really all things, but especially spiritual things, right? And now let's uh, review again the three ways that God answers prayer, and he does answer each prayer. Yes, if what we are asking for is what? Good for us now, okay? So we may grant that exactly what you're asking for. No, if what we're asking for is not good for us now and never will be, or third, wait, right? If what we're asking for now is not good now, but will be at some point to come. 
and what is God's ultimate will for us and ultimate purpose for us in answering all of our prayers. It's our eternal welfare, is it not? That he eventually wants to see us at his side eternally in heaven. And everything is answered through that prism with those, with those lenses on, we might say, as he receives and answers our prayers. And not only wanting us in heaven, but those around us in our lives in heaven as well. And so he answers prayer in those one of those three ways, okay? And so going on uh, in, in verse 11, um, yeah, verse 11, um, what father among you, his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? And, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Well, what's the rhetorical, it's a rhetorical question, but what's the answer? Obviously, uh, a loving father would, would never do that, right? Your son asks uh, for a fish and you give him a snake instead or for an egg and you give him a scorpion. So Jesus is kind of setting up the situation here. Well, of course, no earthly father would do that who loves his child, right? And so again, he says, if you then who are evil, we <laughs> know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will the heavenly Father give what? The Holy Spirit. Notice there he doesn't say whatever you ask for. He will for sure give you the Holy Spirit. There is no doubt about that. There is no question about that. And that Holy Spirit, remember, is the one who strengthens and sustains our faith. Again, see how this all lines up with God's ultimate purpose that we come through the great tribulation, as was uh, stated in the prayers today, and are his eternal companions in heaven. Everything is geared toward that and is seen through that prism, okay? And so the Holy Spirit, uh, of course, later on, Jesus is going to promise the Holy Spirit to the disciples uh, right before he ascends into heaven, right? And he's going to say, stay here in Jerusalem, Till you receive power from on high, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now, was the Holy Spirit active even before that? Yes. You wouldn't have any believers without the Holy Spirit in and amongst uh, the work of Jesus, would you? Okay. Um, if we ask for the Holy Spirit today, I just in the prayer ask for the Holy Spirit to come. And, and work through the word, would the Holy Spirit come even if I didn't pray that petition? Yeah. Again, see, God does these things, but he desires us as his children, number one, recognize that he is the one who does it, that he's the source for all good things, and to ask for it, just like a child would ask their parents, okay? Uh, when you sit down to a meal, we thank God for that food. A child, though, looks, and it's why it's so good. If you don't do that, where does a child think the food comes from? Who supplies the food, do they think? Mom and dad. Yeah, mom and dad supply that. No, we redirect, right, to the, to the truth that it's God who provides this food, okay? Same sort of thing. There's probably going to be food on the table. God's going to, does God give blessings to unbelievers? 
Yes. In fact, sometimes we look around and say, gee, you know, <laughs> we seems like they got, they got more than we do. Right. Uh, but again, we recognize the source of all those blessings. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples here, right? That if you fathers here on earth give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give, again, the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And the answer, of course, again, is rhetorical. He certainly will. There's no question. There's no doubt. Okay? All right, now that kind of ends this section on prayer and kind of this 13-verse this, uh, section. So let me pause here and see. Randy? Yes. <laughs> yeah, Randy, good point. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us, as does Christ. Uh, Romans 8, I think it's uh, 30 or so, around verse 30. Holy Spirit intercedes for uh, Christ is interceding for us as well. But that's the other thing. We could, we could do a whole Bible class here on prayer, obviously, but uh, we pray even with that uh, comfort that um, the Holy Spirit, it says, helps us even when we don't know what to pray for. Probably been in situations like that, right, in life. Lord, I don't know what to ask for here, but I'm, I'm so glad that you do, right? It's not left up to me to phrase my prayer exactly correctly. Uh, again, the Holy Spirit, Christ, interceding for us with God, with the Father. Any other either comments? Yes, Pam? Ah. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. Right, right. Yeah, the, the comment, again, for those uh, listening, is uh, it, it sounds like we're praying for things here when uh, so much of that around us, you, you mentioned relationships. And actually, I think um, when you look at especially the, the version of the Lord's Prayer, there's so much there that is not physical or material, but is actually spiritual. And let me just make this, I didn't do a whole class on this again. But uh, another thing I think we can take from Luke 11 and Matthew 6 is where does the prayer start? Does it start with us or does it start with God? It starts with God, doesn't it? And so often, you know, we're in a, we're in a pickle and we go and pray. And what's the, what's the first person we, we uh, put before God? Who's the first person we put before God? Me, myself, and I, right? And Lord, it's, it's this situation, right? And notice there, it starts with not only addressing God uh, as Father, but it addresses his name, his, his will, and so on. It's God-centered to start with. And then we get down to give us this day our daily bread, right? And I talked about last week that while Luther's explanation is totally, in the small catechism, is totally based on material things. You know, he's got that long laundry list of things that are considered to be daily bread. But in uh, 1519, he lectured on the Lord's Prayer and referred to daily bread as being the living bread who came down from heaven, namely Jesus Christ. And um, 
Uh, so Luther was in both camps when it came to daily bread. What's needed to sustain us really is what he's talking about, not only physically, but also spiritually. So a lot of this is really spiritual stuff that we're praying here. And uh, again, that goes right along with today's sermon, does it not? Where we're, uh, Pastor Thompson directs our eyes away from the things of this world, happiness, money, and so on, and directs them to the things above from Colossians 3. So kind of fits right in there very nicely with that. Any other comments before we move on? All right, now we're going to start in verses 14 through 36, finishing off this next section. And now we're going to start to see opposition to Jesus, uh, quite, quite a bit of opposition now as he travels on to Jerusalem, where he is going to give his life. Let's start with verse 14. And uh, it says, now he, this would be Jesus, of course, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Okay. Now, just stop there for a second. It's not that it says there the demon was mute, but obviously the demon who is in this man made him mute, made him unable to speak, okay? Jesus, and Luke just very matter-of-factly says here that Jesus cast him out. And what's the reaction of the people? They're amazed. They marveled at him. Now, is that saving faith? At this point, no, they were amazed at what he did. Like, oh my, look at that. This guy's talking, right? And I suppose if you were standing there at the tomb of Lazarus after he had been in there for four days and Jesus simply says, Lazarus, come forth, and he comes walking out of the tomb, right? You'd be amazed. And throughout Jesus, three-year earthly ministry, there were probably a lot of people who were amazed. But this is not yet saving faith. It's being amazed and just incredibly um, just thrown off your, your heels, right? At, look, what is this guy? What's he doing, right? Now, I've had sometimes people will say something like this. You know, I wish I was alive back in Jesus' time and I could see the miracles that he did, oh, it would have been so much easier to believe. You agree with that? Look at the people who saw right in front of their very eyes something like this and later would turn and walk away from Jesus, right? In John chapter 6, people are leaving Jesus in droves, and because of some things he's saying about, about the uh, his his, uh, the body, again, the living bread come down from heaven. And that's when he turns to the disciples and says, will you also go away? And that's when Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But so many people saw with their own eyes what Jesus did and turned and walked away. Frankly, I'm much happier <laughs> to be alive now when we have the scriptures that record these miracles for us, but also have so much more of it put together. To be charitable, to be kind, you can think about the people at that time seeing something like that and wondering, whoa, 
who is this guy? And didn't have a lot of other, you know, uh, things written and so on to support them yet at that point. Um, I've also said, what if Christ didn't come back at that time, but came today? What would people's reaction be? Would it, even, would it even make the news? There's this guy out in the wilderness, you know, uh, uh, saying some strange things we don't understand. You know, he'd probably be classified as some kind of a, a cult leader or something. And so, again, I, want, I don't want to be too hard on the people that are seeing these things and are wondering what in the world is going on here. Ruth. They had the scriptures. They had the Old Testament. Yes. Yes. We can say for the Jews especially, they had the scriptures in the Old Testament looking forward to a Messiah who would come. Unfortunately, he did not fit their, their expectations, their expectations of what the Messiah would be and do. Okay. So anyway, go, uh, going on, they are amazed. They are just, uh, you know, knocked over by, by this guy is talking now. Now, here's, here's some, some attempts to explain him. Uh, in the verse 15, but some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, we could spend uh, the rest of the time talking about this Beelzebul. It is cross-referenced, you'll see, uh, in the Old Testament, the first Kings, or, I'm sorry, second Kings, one, verse two and following. There's a whole, he's mentioned several times in the first chapter of uh, Second Kings, as the god of the Edomites, one of the territories, the Edomites, also you'll find uh, notes connecting them to Baal, Baal in the Old Testament. And here, uh, Luke makes it a little bit easier for us because notice there right after Beelzebul, comma, what does he call him? The prince of demons. Well, who would that be? Satan, yeah, this is a way of referring to Satan, okay? And so the people can't comprehend what's going on here, so they're thinking to themselves, huh, he must be casting out demons by the power of the devil. Now, is that logical for them to be thinking that? Notice what Jesus is going to do. I mean, if you think about this. If Jesus is in league with Satan... Why is he casting demons out of people, right? And this is what Jesus is going gonna, is gonna to get to here. Um, verse uh, seven, uh, uh, 16, rather. While others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So some of the people are running around saying, hey, this guy is operating by the power of the devil. And you got other people, what do they want to see? Another sign. They've seen signs already. If their eyes have been opened, they've seen miracles. They want some more. You know, just show us a few more, and we'll believe, right? And again, it, it, it doesn't matter how many he would have done. Again, they'd still want more, right? They're, not, they're just not going to commit. So, verse 17, but he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts. Now, you see, they may not have even been saying these things. But Jesus knows their thoughts. He knows what they're thinking here. And said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And he divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, 
how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? <laughs> Let's stop there for a moment. So what's Jesus' logic here again? You're saying, you know, why would Satan be divided against himself here? If you're saying that I'm operating on the power of Satan, that's not logical. Satan's not working against Satan here, right? So he's not even referring to Scripture here. He's just using plain logic, isn't he? Plain reason. That can't be the case. Satan wouldn't be working against himself, okay? So that's the first thing that he kind of you know, goes to establish, trying to put that out of his mind. Then he talks about, and there were Jewish exorcists who were going around casting out demons. We don't know a lot about them. Uh, one great example is in Acts chapter 19, where the sons of Sceva are, are Jewish exorcists traveling uh, around, and they try to invoke the name of Jesus on a demon and cast that demon out. And the demon just uh, beats them up, and uh, they go running out of the house naked into the street. And uh, this is in uh, Ephesus. And there is such a, a fright that comes over the people that they come and pile up all of their uh, magical books that gave special formulas and burned them all. And so we don't know a lot about this, but Jesus says, if I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, what about your own people who are casting out demons? Are they working with Satan too? Well, what are they going to say? What are the Jews going to say? Oh, no. Not, not our, not our guys. Of course not. And so he's, he's again, trying to get them to see that you're saying I'm operating by the power of Satan. What about then your own guys? And they would, of course, say, no, they're not. And then going on, uh, we're at verse 20. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. They're going back, finish 19. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And the thinking here is that those exorcists, those Jewish exorcists, knew the answer, that Jesus was not operating by the power of Satan, but by the power of God. And thus, they would end up being judges over them. And notice there, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What does Jesus mean if it is by the finger of God? If it's by what? God's power, right? This finger of God goes back into the, it's a, an expression that goes back into the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament expression that goes back to just before the Exodus when God provides the plagues uh, on the people of uh, Egypt, trying to get the Pharaoh to convince, uh, to try to convince the Pharaoh to let the people go, okay? And uh, you'll find a reference to this. Let's see, I've got it. It's in Exodus. Uh, thought I had it written down. Oh, uh, Exodus 8, verse 19. And God brings the first two plagues, being turning the Nile into blood, the Nile River into blood, and the plague of the frogs. And the Egyptian musicians, magicians, not musicians, magicians, <laughs> they didn't have, <laughs> I won't say anything. The uh, 
Egyptian magicians were able to duplicate those plagues and, uh, and do them safe. Then, he, then God brings about the plague of the gnats, and the Egyptian magicians are unable to duplicate that, and they conclude this is the finger of God. Okay, in other words, God is behind this. And Jesus is saying, if it's not by Beelzebul that I'm doing this, and if it is the finger of God, which we know it is, right, then the kingdom of God has come near to you. And you think about that, that statement, the kingdom of God has come upon you. The rule and the reign of God is right upon you at this time, right? That God ruling in the hearts and minds of people, God ruling over demons, this kingdom has come upon you. And doesn't this point ahead to the cross, the casting out of this demon, point ahead to the cross where God will fulfill the promise of crushing not just demons, but the head of Satan himself. And it points ahead to the very last day when all evil will be done away with. And all things, God says, I'm making all things new and without sin, without evil. Okay? So the kingdom of God is coming before them in the face of Jesus. Now, let me stop here for just a second. How does the kingdom of God come to us today? How and when does the kingdom of God come? Word and sacrament, the means of grace, right? Uh, probably for most of us here in this room, uh, it came at our baptism, water and word, that kingdom of God came, ruling in our hearts from that day forward, okay? Uh, for other people, and this is why, um, you know, they may not be baptized as an infant, or maybe they were baptized as an infant and fell away, that kingdom of God comes again through the word of God in their life. And that word proclaimed to them. And that's why whenever we have a wedding or a funeral here at St. Paul's, we know that probably going to be the case that there will be some non-Christians attending that funeral or that wedding simply out of either there may be a, a relative, a family member, maybe a good friend of theirs, and so they come to the either funeral or wedding. And that's why we, without question, reach Christ and Christ crucified for their forgiveness and everlasting life. It's, I'll tell you, it's easier at a funeral because you've got death and life right there in front of you, right? It's not too hard to get there. It's a little more challenging at a wedding, but again, we do not um, uh, fail to preach Christ because what's happening there for that person? The kingdom of God is coming near to them. And I often think to myself, uh, you know, how many more times will some of these people in their life have the kingdom of God come that near to them? Um, you know, people who do not frequently hear the word of God. And so, Again, this is what was happening. In Jesus, the kingdom of God had come upon these people. 
okay? As he does today through his means of grace, as we were talking about, okay? And so, again, it's the finger of God. It is the kingdom of God coming upon them. Now, this next little, uh, finish off this little section, verses 21 through 23. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, this is kind of a hard one to figure out, and it may not be the way you first want to go. But let me just tell you, the strong one here, the strong man who guards his house is, in fact, Satan. Not God, but Satan. So he's the strong one who's guarding his house. Who's the stronger one that comes and overtakes him? Jesus, right? This is a way of Jesus saying, without saying it directly, that the stronger one is here. I cast out a demon. He's going to do more than that. He's going to overtake Satan. And um, so this, again, is a reference, we would say, to the saving ministry of Jesus Christ, what he has come here to do, to put right again what Satan and sin have ruined in this creation. Okay, And he's starting by simply casting out demons, but it's going to be much more than that. Then verse 23, I wanted to talk just a little bit about Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So true or false, you can kind of sit on the fence when it comes to Jesus. Not at all. If you're not for me, you're against me, right? There's no, there's no sitting on the fence. Uh, and boy, you wonder, um, again, you may know people like this, certainly, who... You know, um, well, you know, it's kind of interesting. I'll have to think about that. And again, you, you, there's no sitting, there's no gray area here, right? When Jesus talks, he does the same thing when he talks about the wheat and the chaff that are gathered up, right? The wheat is thrown into the barn, and what, is, what happens to the chaff? Thrown in the fire, right? Again, there is no sitting on the fence. And this, of course, is related to the what I call the exclusive claim of Christ and the Christian faith, that in, in John 14, 6, for example, Jesus says, I am what? The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's not very popular today. Uh, a lot of people like to think that, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Uh, as long as you live a good life and try your best and, and so on, and it goes on and on and on and on, which all sounds very nice to us, right? But unfortunately, it's not scriptural, and it's not certainly not what Jesus said, right? So again, there is no gray area here. It's either you're for him or you're against him. Even though you may say, oh, I'm not against him, but no, you're not for him either, right? Ruth. Oh, yeah, that's a, a reference uh, from a Revelation. You're referencing that the lukewarm he will spew out of his mouth. Right, that's, a, that's another good uh, parallel verse uh, to this as well. All right, let me stop here. At this, we're at the end of this section.
Any other comments or questions about this? Mark. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So again, for those listening, the question was uh, concerning the phrase, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Is it really there or is it sort of in the, in the vicinity somewhere and I need to go out and find it? Yeah, I think we would say that Jesus is saying it's, it's right here. It's right in your presence. It's right here. And we don't have to go out there looking for it at all. And it has come near to you. Uh, I didn't, I, Buzz got the original language at the scene. I didn't look at that, that particular, whether it's a pawn, is it, is it at peep, for example, but all right, we can, we, we've got people with the great New Testaments here uh, at St. Paul's. So we come fully, I should have had mine up here. Uh, it might be, it's near you. So it is, uh, is that verse 20? Yeah, the end of verse 20. You've got upon you. Okay. Oh, it's upon you. Yeah, that's what I've got as well. Did I say, I said near. It's upon. It's probably a P then. Yeah. Come upon you. Okay. So, and again, we would say the same thing today. When we, we don't have to go out looking when we've got the means of grace and are right here in our midst. We don't need to go out looking for it. So anyway, yeah, it's a pond. Does that help, Mark? It's, it's actually a pond. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Near to you. Yeah. Yeah. So again, here it's a pond, but I think, I think you're right. And I would have to look, look it up. I don't know exact spots, but I think you're right that there are other spots where Jesus uses near. And again, we have to look up what is the word that's there. But I think in all of those, it's really the same thing. He's saying it's standing right next to you, you know? <laughs> yeah. Confronting them. Exactly. So it's right there, right there for them to take in. Has come to you. Okay. Very good. All right. Let's go on. Uh, this is kind of a, maybe a little scary, uh, this next section here, starting at verse 24. And uh, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Oh, when one spirit is cast out, of course, he has just cast this uh, demon out. It goes around looking for other places, other people to inhabit, finding none. It comes back and finds the house that it left in reference to the person or the, the soul of that person, all swept and made clean. In other words, it's what? It's ready to be inhabited again. And it comes back and, and uh, brings along some buddies, right? Brings seven more along. 
and they're even worse than he is. And what's the, what's the implication or what's the, uh, the inference here? By being open and hospitable, who is not there in that soul? Jesus is not there. Exactly. And that's why it is, it is so important that it's not just the demon being cast out, but it's Jesus filling that void, right? And again, go back to whoever is not for me is against me, right? And so uh, we could get into the whole, um, the whole subject of demon possession. Uh, it certainly is assumed in the scriptures. In fact, Jesus cast demons out throughout the Gospel of Luke. And ironically, these demons seem to know who he is better than the people do. <laughs> they address him as the Holy One of God. And uh, uh, I always caution people, that, because the question always is, well, can that happen today? Yes. And I always caution people to just stay away from that stuff. You know, uh, when I was growing up uh, way back, uh, Ouija boards and tarot cards, and I don't hear as much about that today, but I know it's still out there, I guess. And I always say, don't open yourself up to that stuff. Like here, provide the, provide the swept clean house, right? For it to come in. Don't just don't, just don't mess around with that stuff because it is dangerous, right? And we could go into all kinds of discussion about what do people try to fill that void with today? If it's not Jesus, it's many, many different things, right? That uh, almost everything under the sun, to quote Solomon and Ecclesiastes, right? To, to try to fill that void in their life. And um, Augustine, who was quoted in the sermon today, also had another statement that he made famous. Our souls do not find their rest until they find their rest in thee. In other words, our souls were, were created for fellowship with God, and we don't find our, the rest for our souls until they find their rest in God, or we should say God finds their soul and puts it to rest. So that same kind of thing, and boy, you think about, again, all the things today that people try to fill that void with in their lives. I mean, everything from their career to money to just all kinds of things. And again, look at the Old Testament lesson for today and look at the gospel lesson for today. They speak to that from Ecclesiastes 3 and the guy who's going to tear down his barns and build bigger ones and sit back and say, soul, now I, now I you know, have my comfort, eat, relax, eat, drink, and be merry, so to speak. And God comes and says, fool, tonight your soul is required of you. And so again, there's only one who can fill that void. And it's Jesus. And thanks be to God, he has, has filled that void in our lives. All right, let me stop again. Any questions, bud? Thanos, okay. Ah, all right. Has arrived or reached you, yeah. So again, I think that same thing. Here it is right here. We don't have to go out, we don't have to go out looking for it, okay? All right, we got a few minutes. Let's just go one more uh, little section here. Uh, well, let me stop. I'm just going to stop. Any other questions or comments before we go on? All right, real quickly, we'll finish uh, this last little part here. Uh, here's a ray of sunshine. <laughs> As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. 
But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Okay? So, it comes across in the midst of all this opposition and all these challenges to Jesus, here's a woman who speaks up and sounds very positive toward him. You know, blessed, um, blessed be the womb that bore you and the breasts which, on which you nursed. Now, who would that be a reference to? To Mary, right? And uh, she is, uh, we think, saying, she is, because of what she is hearing and believing in Jesus, she is saying, blessed is the woman who birthed you, right? And nursed you. Now, when Jesus says in uh, verse 28, he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Is Jesus here uh, talking against Mary? by saying, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it? Or is he saying, well, Mary was nothing. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. No. And this is not, uh, certainly not Luke's intent, not uh, Christ's intent. But what's he driving at here? More important than, than uh, raising a child is hearing the word of God and keeping it. Because it's through hearing that word of God and keeping it that what comes? Salvation, right? Forgiveness and salvation. Was Mary saved by giving birth to Jesus and nursing Jesus? No. She was saved by what? Faith and trust by believing, by hearing the word of God and keeping it. When the angel came to her and told her all of what's going to happen, she said, what? Let it be to me as what? You have in other words, she believed the word of God. That's how she's saved. And again, we're not, I'm not trying to be critical of Mary here. Uh, that's, not our, that's not our role, not our point. Uh, but again, it's not that Jesus is critical of Mary saying, but even much greater than that is anyone who hears the word of God and keeps it or treasures it is another way of translating that, treasures it, okay? Um, we will probably stop there because the next section talks about the sign of Jonah and the, the, what ends up being the Queen of Sheba. I mean, and I don't think I could do that in about three minutes. So we'll stop right here today and pick up, you'll pick up next week at verse 29 in Luke 11 and talk about, and, and what do you notice that Jesus really takes off on this generation, that one he's, he's in right there, in fact, four times. He uses the phrase, this generation, and not in a great way uh, in the verses that are going to come. Well, you'll pick up on that next week. Let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you. Amen. Amen.